Hey, podcast family, we're back with another episode. Listen, starting on May the 19th, going to the 21st of 2023, ACOG will have its annual clinical and scientific meeting in Baltimore. One of the highlighted sessions during that meeting will be, quote, the redesigned prenatal care initiative, end quote. Yeah, isn't that great? ACOG is actually looking at an evidence-based approach to redefine the schedule of visits for prenatal care. You see, the original schedule of events that we still adhere to today go back to the 1930s. But we've learned a thing or two since the pandemic. There's two main things that I think the pandemic has helped us realize. One, we can do meetings online and they're equally as productive. I can't get people to come to meetings in person anymore. And then the second issue has to do with this topic, which is prenatal care. Because during the pandemic, we got kind of loosey-goosey on our visits. And you know what? It was okay as long as a patient was deemed average risk. So we can be a little bit more flexible with our prenatal care schedule. I think you'd agree that it's good for us to have mentors and people that we aspire to be like, both in our professional life and in our personal life. Well, one of the physicians that I look up to is Mark Tarantine. He's an incredible MFM physician. He's at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, and he's one of the facilitators, one of the faculty members through ACOG who's helping to lead this initiative. So I thought in this episode, why don't we take a sneak peek at that highlighted session coming up in the college annual clinical meeting again in 2023. And we're going to review some of those key points in this session right now. Nothing like getting to the information five months ahead of schedule. So let's listen to this new paradigm, this new thought of redesigning prenatal care for the average risk patient. Now, there's a lot said right there in that phrase, average risk patient. And we're going to try to define that in this episode. Ready? Let's take look at redesigning prenatal care right now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Now, before I get in with the content, I do need to give a little disclosure. I am doing this in the hospital. I'm on call today, and I don't have time. I don't want to run back to the studio at night, which was the original plan. I just want to knock it out here. As I've said before in other episodes, I always travel with my little mic, and I've got a little sound kind of dampening device anyway. But my sound people hate it because there's always these weird random noises. You can hear people's pager in the hallway. I've got a big AC unit in the in, out, right outside my window from our call room. So anyway, if the audio sounds a little weird. Uh, I'm trying my best to do it. I know the audio guys will try to uh, take out all that other stuff, but I just want to get home and eat dinner and watch some brainless show and then go to bed. I do not want to go to the studio tonight. So I'm doing this in the hospital. Anyway, just thought I'd give you a little disclosure in case you hear some random conversation in the background. For years, I've assisted with OBGYN oral board prep for candidates, and I love doing that. It's a great time. Well, I guess it's a great time for me, a little stressful for the candidate, but nonetheless, we get through it. And I remember pre-pandemic, there was always questions about, quote, the standard, end quote, OB prenatal care algorithm. Traditionally, prenatal care had been delivered through a standard 12 to 14 in-person visit schedule. Remember, it was every four weeks until 28 weeks, bi-weekly until 36 weeks, and then weekly thereafter. Yeah, that 12 to 14 in-person visit schedule actually is a remnant from the 1930s that was first codified by the U.S. Children's Bureau to help detect high blood pressure elevations or preeclampsia in the mother. 
And that was a standard of care. But we now know that there's no data confirming absence of any adverse prenatal issues simply based on the number of prenatal visits completed. This negative impact of unnecessary visits may be particularly felt by patients with barriers to care, like low-income or rural patients. Flexible visit schedules, telemedicine, and group prenatal care have been proposed as promising strategies for addressing these issues in prenatal care delivery. But these models have failed to gain traction in the general maternity care community, and it's largely driven by medical legal fears. Oh, but nothing like a little pandemic to shake things up. Because <laughs> when COVID came around, by the way, COVID was terrible. I've had COVID. It took me out. It was terrible. My family has lost a member to COVID. So in no way am I making light of this whole thing. And obviously, we're still in it. But I'm saying that it took COVID for us to go, yeah, maybe we don't need to see you that frequently. Maybe we can do a televisit. And everybody got so novel, like it was a first idea to, to do this differently. But for the last decade, we've been taking a look at doing prenatal care in a different way, mainly because of this new thing on the on the stage called SDHs or social determinants of health. I mean, not everybody can make that many number of in-person visits. It's time away from home or time away from work. And it's really a lot to ask in a, you know, whatever 30 or 40 week interval based on when the patient starts prenatal care. So this new revision or redesigned prenatal care algorithm or model actually had new life in 2020. A new model for those who qualify for this altered or alternative prenatal care schedule was called the PATH prenatal care offering. That's PATH as in P-A-T-H. Now, this wasn't something that somebody just kind of drew up on a board. I mean, this took evidence-based data and along with researchers from the University of Michigan and ACOG's support and endorsement, there's now a structured alternative to the 12 to 14 in-person visit called this PATH prenatal care. PATH stands for Plan for Appropriate Tailored Healthcare in Pregnancy. That's nice, huh? Plan for Appropriate Tailored Healthcare in Pregnancy, or the PATH prenatal care algorithm. Yep, this is not your grandmother's style of prenatal care, and thank goodness for that. Although telemedicine has been increasingly incorporated in other specialties, prenatal care was largely delivered through in-person visits, again, until the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, let me clarify something right now. No, this is not about watering down prenatal care just to comply with pandemic guidelines or regulations. That's not what I'm talking about here at all. While these new modifications did obviously help with social distancing, and hopefully they helped with infection control, this new design, which was for average-risk women, goes beyond the pandemic, and now it's endorsed by ACOG. Again, the catch here is for average-risk pregnant patients, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later on in this session. But for right now, let's talk about this proposed PATH model, its benefits, and its one big limitation. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Now, right off the bat, you should have caught something, a certain term that I said just a moment ago, because here words really do mean something. And that was the term, quote, average risk pregnancy, end quote. I remember when I was a resident in Dallas County, uh, I said something to one of my attendees. I said, oh, I got somebody coming over from triage, but it's no big deal. I mean, she's low risk. And boy, did they rip into me. I mean, the idea was that pregnancy is never a low risk situation. There's only average risk and then higher than average risk. And it's crazy because we say that all the time, right? Oh, she's low risk or she's high risk. But really pregnancy with all its physiological changes and adaptations, I mean, there's nothing low risk about pregnancy at all. I mean, there's just average risk. I think I may have even said that earlier in the session. I think I even said low risk, but that's not right. Pregnant women have an average risk. In other words, a baseline risk of things that can go wrong. And thankfully, in the vast majority of the time, they don't go wrong. But that's interesting, isn't it? Words really do matter here. Average risk is much more accurate as a term than low risk because low risk is pretty rare. I mean, pregnancy is risky enough. So I just wanted to really make that clarification that in this PATH algorithm, it really does describe average risk. This is not for the higher risk patient. It's for the average risk, the baseline population risk for issues, not the high risk. By the way, we have similar nomenclature for preeclampsia because when I trained, it was mild preeclampsia and severe preeclampsia. And I think I've said this in other episodes. But now, because there's nothing mild about preeclampsia, I mean, that's a real physiological dangerous condition. So now it's preeclampsia with or without severe features. But you see, we've even changed that terminology. There's no more mild preeclampsia or severe preeclampsia, just preeclampsia with or without severe features. What's the same here for pregnancy? Pregnancy is either average risk or higher than average risk. I want to dig a little bit deeper on this whole issue of average risk patient, okay? I mean, what what exactly is that? I mean, if you were to tell me what's the average risk patient, my simple answer would be she's pregnant. I mean, that's it. Let's just start right there. But here's the catch, right? If you kind of dig into this, you do some literature review, there's no universally accepted national or international definition for what the average risk OB patient is. Now, it's interesting. We can easily define the high-risk patient, right? That's patient on uh, polysubstance abuse, a patient with chronic hypertension, diabetes, SLE, uh, recalcitrant asthma, yada, yada, yada. The list goes on and on. We know what a high risk is. So by definition, if you don't have that, then you're just kind of an average-risk patient. The PATH panel proposed the following flexible and pragmatic definition of what an average-risk pregnant patient would look like. The PATH authors state, quote, Pregnancies without significant medical, pregnancy, or mental health conditions that can be cared for by general maternity care clinicians, which are either OBGYNs, family medicine physicians, certified nurse midwives, or nurse practitioners, can qualify for this PATH alternative pathway. The working group that helped to draft the PATH algorithm recognized the importance of tailoring recommendations to patients' medical conditions, including chronic conditions and pregnancy complications, as well as their social determinants of health. See, that's an important concept that we really haven't been that well trained on historically. That's this whole issue of SDHs, social determinants of health. I mean, we're really trained to look for family history and issues of abuse and intimate partner violence. But do we really ask about SDHs? I mean, we really should. While 
although ACOG and health policymakers have recommended that healthcare providers screen for social determinants of health for over a decade, this practice is still not routinely incorporated into prenatal care. Here's why this is important. Oh, and let me share this humbling experience which happened when I was just fresh out of residency and I was a junior faculty member, okay? You see, I was overseeing the resident clinic and this patient came in who was notorious for not showing up to her prenatal appointments and she was somewhere in her third trimester. So I said, ah, let me show these residents how to educate a patient on missing, on the dangers of missing her prenatal appointment. I don't know she's putting her baby at risk. So I went in and tore into her about how it's just not responsible and she needs to take care of herself. You know, the arrogant new faculty perspective. I mean, I'll own it. I mean, I was wrong. And this poor patient sat there and listened to what I had to say. And then she said, uh, doctor, do you know why I, I don't come to these appointments like you want me to? Of course, I said, uh, no. Well, I learned and we all did in the room and it was very humbling. You see, one of her other children was suffering from chronic kidney disease and was on dialysis. And so this patient needed to go three times a week so that her child could have dialysis and the family had one car. I mean, I was humbled. I was embarrassed. And I understood that this patient was, was literally juggling between meeting her prenatal needs and taking to her son, to, uh, her child, to dialysis so the child doesn't die. I mean, do you see that? I mean, we get so, you know, high and mighty from our medical tower. And I'm telling you, it's humbling. It's a long fall down. I was embarrassed. I felt for her and I apologized. Guys, this whole issue of social determinants of care is real. So the next time that you go and try to pick a fight with your patient because they're not making their appointments, I think it's very humbling to remember that story. And as always, put yourself in their, in their position. You never know what they've gone through, what they're going through, or what reasons they may have. Anyway, just wanted to share that with you. That's why ACOG and the drafters of this PATH algorithm recommend doing an interview on social determinants of health at the first patient prenatal intake visit. And it doesn't have to be a long, drawn-out process. It literally is, do you have transportation issues? Do you have any issues or concerns about cost of coming to the physician's office? Do you have child care needs? You can do this in literally about one minute, and you can gain valuable insights about the patient's worldview. Well, nothing like beating a point down into the ground, huh? All right, now that we've done that, let's get back to this prenatal care issue. Prenatal care is one of the most common preventative services done in the entire country, and it's utilized by 98% of the 4 million pregnant patients who give birth each year. That number comes out of the U.S. Vital Statistics Report and the CDC. It's vital that we all recognize that prenatal care services have evolved significantly over the past century and now include new technology like everyone has a basic ultrasound and anatomy scans and they even have cell-free DNA genetic testing. There is evidence and unified expert opinion that the traditional model of prenatal care may be too rigorous and not even realistic for a lot of patients who have limitations on transportation or uh, limits on their health coverage or even childcare issues. And for those women who are considered average risk during pregnancy, they are more likely than not to be totally okay without any excess risk by going to less frequent prenatal visits. Now, before you send me some weird message, no, I am not trying to get out of seeing my prenatal patients. I mean, I love seeing them. Actually, it's the majority of what I do. I do high-risk obstetrics with a little bit of gynecology sprinkled on the side because I don't want to lose those skills. No, no, no. I love seeing our prenatal patients. And if our patients can make those number of visits, then please keep the traditional paradigm. That's totally okay. 
But for those patients that consider it a stressor or consider it a burden to come and their average risk, then far from us to give them extra burden or extra stress or anxiety because they can't make an appointment. That's where this falls in, all right? So let me be very clear. I'm not calling for a complete overhaul on prenatal care, but I am saying it's time for us to think about it differently in patients who have limitations or can't keep the scheduled number of appointments and are at average risk, it's totally okay to deviate from the norm. By the way, this assessment of their social determinants of health doesn't necessarily have to be at that initial in-person contact. I mean, you can do what you have to do at that first visit, and then you can follow up with telehealth. You can do that by phone and do an assessment of their needs based on that remote session. The assessment can be completed either by a physician or resident, a social worker, case manager, a nurse, an MA. You've got no one specific person. It's a large catch of people who can do this. I'm going to read you this excerpt from the PATH description because it's pretty strongly worded. And again, it's not mine. This is right out of the PATH algorithm. But listen to how they justify this less is more approach to the average risk OB patient. Quote, additional visits may be unnecessary and even associated with increased interventions without maternal or neonatal benefit. The negative impact of unnecessary visits may be particularly felt by patients with barriers to care like low income or those who are rural, end quote. Now that we've laid down that background, let's get into the specifics here. I mean, what does this PATH algorithm look like? So I'm going to lay this out, assuming that the patient starts care in the first trimester and it goes all the way to term, okay? So let's talk about the specifics next. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now that we're getting ready to wrap this up, let's take a look at what this PATH-adjusted or modified prenatal care schedule would look like, assuming that the patient comes into care in the first trimester. Patients without medical conditions or any adverse social determinants of health can complete their first obstetrical ultrasound and their first prenatal visit between 7 and 10 weeks of pregnancy. That's mainly for gestational dating. Patients presenting after this interval should be scheduled as soon as possible for that dating ultrasound. Patients and clinicians can then select from a range of visits and monitoring intervals, anywhere from every four to six weeks for the first and second trimester, in other words, from about 13 weeks and six days, all the way up to 27 weeks and six days, and then from an interval of two to four weeks for the early third trimester, That's between 28 weeks and zero to 35 weeks and zero days. From 35 to 36 weeks forward, then the recommendation remains the same, which is to continue observation weekly because of that increased rise in blood pressure. So remember, most of the flexibility has to do with the first part of pregnancy all the way until about 35 weeks. And then after 35 weeks, then it goes back to weekly visits, mainly because of the increase in blood pressure. And we still want to be observant at that later part of gestation and also monitor for signs of labor. 
Now, remember, we're not talking about missing or cutting back on any vital tests here. They still need the one-hour glucose tolerance test between 24 and 28 weeks. They still need Rogam at the usual time if necessary. They still need to be screened for GBS between 36 weeks until 37 weeks and 6 days. Nothing changes there. We're just taking away some of the other visits that were in between to kind of lighten the load if the patient is at average risk and they have some social determinants of health that makes keeping the routine, the tradition, schedule difficult for them or more stressful. Oh, and yes, that still includes the anatomy scan with the universal cervical length screening at 18 to 22 weeks. They still need Rogam at 28 to 32 weeks and Tdap between 28 and 36 weeks. Nothing changes. We're just taking out the intervening dots that are in between of those visits to try to lessen the load on the patient. Now, before we get into that one big limitation that's still the elephant in the room for this PATH redesigned prenatal care algorithm or proposal, just a quick word about telemedicine because part of this redesigned protocol, it's it's not all or none. Like you either come into the doctor's office or you don't. There is something in the middle. There's a referee here, a mediator, and that, of course, is telemedicine. And remember that ACOG has a whole committee opinion on that, which is 798. The college has a lot of helpful guidelines on how to do OB telemedicine. So take a look at that for both legal and regulatory issues. And now, as we get ready to wrap this thing up, the big disclosure about this PATH redefined prenatal care proposal. Like I said in the intro, here's this one big limitation and it's the elephant in the room. Well, here it is. As good as all this sounds, still neither the traditional 12 to 14 in-person visit model nor this new flexible model of prenatal care are supported by robust evidence. It's all led by maternity providers, maternity experts, and their expert opinion. That's called level C recommendations. And that's okay. We do a lot of stuff that's based on expert opinion. But there's no randomized trial. There's no large cohort data. And that's the big limitation here. Nonetheless, remember that we do have proof of concept because even though this predated the pandemic, people have been talking about doing this for over 10 years, it took the pandemic for us to actually try it and it worked and nobody was harmed with by going to less prenatal visits. So it can work. However, we do need larger databases. We do need larger cohorts to prove that it works. And that's the whole purpose of that highlighted session coming up at the college. Remember that that's going to be one of the highlighted sessions at the clinical meeting in May the 19th to the 21st in Baltimore. I just wanted you to start thinking about this in a new way and stop yelling at our patients when they can't meet all the visits because in the majority of the time, it's going to be okay. Now, remember, this does not apply to those patients who are high risk. That's a whole other issue that doesn't apply. They need the traditional model because that's evidence-based and tested. But for the average risk with social determinants of health, just something to consider this PATH model going forward. All right, podcast family, I cannot believe it. I actually successfully completed this episode with only four, that's four, texts that got in the way. Oh, thank goodness for editing. Well, I'm now going to send this audio off to our sound engineers so they can try to make this sound better than it does in a normal hospital room. But nonetheless, I'm thankful for you all. We've covered the PATH prenatal care algorithm from the University of Michigan, supported by ACOG. And remember, this will be discussed at the ACOG clinical meeting of 2023. We're thankful for you, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.